Welcome to It Can Be Said. My my name is Will Calling, and joined as always by the one, the only, uh, Dr. Middup. How, how slaps are you today, slap? <laughs> I'm going to say, Will, don't hurt me. You've got that crazy look in your eye. Oh, I, I would never slap a slap. And also joining <laughs> us is Slappy Al- Alvi. How are you today, Slappy? I'm fine, yes. All right, now, I'm just, now I've just got Slappy the Squirrel. <laughs> is that what you call it, Luke? Oh, come on, you all watched, you all, you're all about my age, you all watched Animaniacs. <laughs> oh no, this has gone entirely off the rails already. A Who bit like they? this the year's band, Oscars. The band on the stage. Who? The band. The band on the stage. Who? <laughs> For once, I'm not the only one of the podcast who has been drinking. Um, <laughs> fun, fun story. Uh, late last night, I'd just finished trying to scare the bejesus out of my stepson by showing him first Fred's, then the original Candyman. Um, and um, I was finishing off um, a training presentation I had to deliver the following day and I was just about to go to bed at 4am but as I do not that I'm addicted I could stop anytime I wanted um I I went to check Twitter and the whole world was imploding because Will Smith had just slapped Chris Rock after Chris Rock had made a joke about um Will Smith's wife uh Jada, Jada Pinkett Smith um having a shaved head and she has a shaved head uh, due to a skin condition. Um, Will Smith then tells Chris Rock to keep um, his wife's effing name out of his effing mouth. Um, because, you know, unlike Will Smith, we can't cuss because of uh, various podcast ratings. Oh, how naughty is Will Smith and pop culture would be surprised by that reality. Um, so obviously the whole world is going crazy. You guys are not nocturnal. You woke up this morning to, to see this craziness, including that Will Smith then went on to win the Oscar for Best Actor, his <laughs> first Oscar win. Um, what say you, Luke? I, I, I Where to start with this? Because, like, you know, Will Smith, Will Smith is like a cultural icon, has been, you know, throughout our lifetimes. You'd sort of you sort of actually have to go quite you'd have to go quite a long way actually to find somebody with both the breadth and depth of impact um that Will Smith has had on popular culture. I might query I might query Luke, I might query impact, but certainly the range of stuff he's done. Yeah. It's well, quite let me, impressive. Let me put it this way, Will. You say you query impact. Do you know all the words to the theme tune of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air? No. What? I've never watched the French Pr- Prince of Bel Air. <laughs> I think this is one of those that is, ones. That is a lie. You have. Everybody no. has. No, never, never watched it. I, I, I remember it being repeated after The Simpsons on BBC Two, um, but always switching I, over. I don't know. My camera switched on, but my jaw is literally hanging. I think I think this is one of those ones where me being a couple of years younger than you is actually quite a profound difference. All right, well let, let's let's bring in Simon, who's a couple of years younger still. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you watch the Fresh Prince of Bel 
I don't think I've watched the whole episode. I've watched I've watched clips and bits and bobs over the years, and obviously, I mean, I know, I know the I know the um, I know the theme tune. Um, it did lead to the only genuinely good Instagram post I've ever done, which was at a time when I didn't have Instagram, and I was in I was in Philadelphia, and it, there was a sign said um, to, uh, a sign in a, in a station that said to West Philadelphia, and I just I just photographed and said this is what I call a reverse West, this is what I call a reverse Fresh Prince. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think that the your broader point though, is is obviously relevant because this is it's it's a strange thing now you know Will Smith is not you know ignoring the ignoring the incident at the heart of this like to say Will Smith is an Oscar winner you know the star of Wild Wild West and Miami yeah. you know, the guy that wrote no, no, you know, yeah, going to it, Miami got to give it its proper title sorry it's wickedy wickedy Wild Wild West but like he made. And obviously made Independence Day, which is a perfectly fa- yeah. is a perfectly good, stupid billion dollar blockbuster film. Lovely stuff. Um, as rocks. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous. But like fine. And you know, we're easy, you know, and, and for this guy who made, yeah, basically rubbish action films, did rapping that is obviously famously child friendly, but is mostly quite naff. Um to now be a very well-regarded actor, and he has been for a while. I mean, you know, he was nominated for Ali a few years ago. I think he may have had a third nomination somewhere. Well, you said a few years ago. That was like 20 years ago. Sorry. Oh, oh, okay. And then Pursuit of Happiness about 10 years ago, and, that, and now he's actually won it for King Richard. Yeah. Um, like, it, 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 he, he's, had an extreme, he's had an extremely successful career. He's a you know, he is a very, very significant yeah, I mean, massive I would, figure I would, in pop I would, culture. I would, I would, I would say, I say this quite seriously. I would say the only sort of figure you could put up against it, and I'll have to either Tom Cruise or I think more pertinently Madonna. Because this one, I just would push back. On I think Tom Cruise is a good comparison, but I would just push back on. Will Smith was ne- never had cultural impact in a sense of he was he wasn't seen as being particularly good or groundbreaking. So, like, he was disposable fluff in the eighties, nineties. He then kind of transitioned into being a reasonably well-respected actor, but like, he's not had like a huge. You look at Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise has Mission Impossible movies as a respected actor, as like a big set piece blockbuster that's still doing well today. What's Will Smith's equivalent of that? He doesn't really have one. My mother is one man in black. Nope, as as like a serious actor, as a serious dramatic actor. You oh, know, come like, on, the Mission Impossible films are not serious films. But like, I feel. I feel like he's a, he's a famous guy. He's an important celebrity. He's clearly a big mover and shaker in Hollywood. I would just push back on the rapping thing slightly because Will Smith's rapping career is is undervalued. I think undervalued. In the, go, in go the on sense, MC Midup. Tell, tell us all. Pardon. Go on MC Midup. Tell us all. In the summertime is a very in the and now admittedly. He only co-wrote in the summertime, but that is a very that is a very influent that is a very influential song in terms of setting the the sort of the, the sort of 
sound and yeah, the sort of sound of rap for a good four or five years in the mid nineties. Coming soon to Radio One Extra, it could be rap by Flashmaster Doctor Middle. You know, every time I get murdered for not having a grip for having a grip on popular culture, I actually do listen to a wide <laughs> range of music than people give me credit for. I like the fact that your defense that this is resting on is your knowledge of 1990s Will Smith songs. I know pop culture, goddammit. I, I know I, Will I know, Smith. I know, I, know, I know a broader range of pop culture than I'm given credit for. <laughs> and I know, seriously, In the Summertime is a very influential song. Um, I'm only, and by the way, I'm going, this is mostly because I follow a guy literally whose handle is The Rap Critic. He does a very good. He's got a very good. He's got a very good YouTube channel, actually. I mean, like I must admit, like we make like this is a point. I'm. Tr- I, I don't think I'm explaining myself well. I like Will Smith. I like a lot of Will Smith movies. I like Men in Black. I like High Robots. Um, I like some of his songs. Uh, uh, getting jiggy with it is a good. Is is a fun song. Men in Black is a fun song. Oh no, getting jiggy with it. That's like oh, that's like later period Will Smith that's after he'd stop being in that's after he'd stop trying for the rap with the rapper well this is the thing with me when it comes to rap like I I I I like rap but I don't know very much about it and I'll hold my hands up about that so my stuff is either the stuff that everybody knows or it's really cheesy novelty rap um but I just don't feel like he was Cutting edge. It's a bit like Tom Hanks. No, he was never. He was never cutting edge. Yeah, it's a bit like Tom Hanks, isn't it? Like Tom Hanks will someday die, um, and he will be remembered for for being a good actor in some movies and everybody liking him. But that will be like the the extent of his influence. Whereas, no, Marlon Brando, who everybody hated who delivered some of the worst performances of all time and spent a lot of his time just you know, not doing anything, he has several performances that were genuinely groundbreaking. This is why people like Clint Eastwood are so exceptional, because Clint Eastwood is somebody who's been able to do both, be somebody at the cutting edge, as you know, arguably as both an actor and a director, but be this genial, consistent Ever, oh, ever no. constant presence you, you, in I'm people's sorry. life. You don't get, you don't get to call Clint Eastwood genius. <laughs> no, sorry, I don't mean he's genius, but I mean like people feel warm feelings <laughs> that Clint Eastwood exists and he's making his movie this year, like again. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, I, I think this is why it's shocking, isn't it? Because like, you know, I mentioned, I referenced it. In my intro, you know, the real Slim Shady by uh, NNM, you know, you know, Will Smith doesn't have to curse in my records, but I do. So, you know, F you. Um, this idea that Will Smith was this squeaky clean, wouldn't do anything wrong. Yeah, you, but, but you, know, you, know the, you know the story behind why Will Smith wouldn't curse in his records? Go on. He did once, and it really, really, really upset his grandmother. And she made him swear that he would never, uh, you know, swear as in take an oath that he would never curse on a record ever again. You know, there's a funny one um, of not Chris Rock, but The Rock. One of the rumours about why he came back and did some wrestling in 2011, 2012 and 2013 
was that he had done a, 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 a interview at a UFC show where he was like, well, you know, if I had my time again, I wouldn't have been a pro wrestler. I'd have been a UFC fighter, which A, is hilarious. He has no combat sports background whatsoever. But B, it really annoyed his grandmother, who is like this a matriarch of one of the most famous wrestling families um, of all time back in Hawaii. And like basically the way he made peace with his grandmother was to do some wrestling. And also, like the the the, the reason the reason the reason the reason why there's beef between Will Smith and Eminem is because on I can't remember the I I'm blanking on the name of the song, but basically what basically there's a whole like verse in a Will Smith song that's on the same album as Get Jiggy with it. Where he makes the he basically uses the verse to make the argument that it's lazy that um, constantly swearing is lazy rapping because it means you don't it means you don't have to write tight rhymes. Oh, he's right. Yeah. Um. That's why you got. That's why you got. Are you trying rhyme something with getting jiggy with it? It's it's bloody hard work. I know the rhyme is woo. <laughs> <laughs> you, Simon. Do you get a sense that we are not treating this story with the severity it, it deserves? What, well, what are the implications of the slap that was heard around the world? I mean, the, the answer is, which we, I think you're treating it with exactly the level of serious, that seriousness that it kind of deserves. I mean, my, my because on, unsurprisingly, you know, this came up on a call at work, and, you know, as the introduction to the bit to it. And, and my, my, my position, as it was several hours ago, and it still is, Everyone involved should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves. Um, it was course, a horribly, it was a horribly tasteless joke. It was a really, un, it was a, a really unpleasant joke. And by the way, I don't think it's people have been bit. A lot of people have been, you know, going, "Oh, Ricky Gervais is in hiding today." But as much, and I hate having, to, I hate defending Ricky Gervais because I find the man deeply irritating. But like, what he was, what he was doing was a consistent act of trying to puncture the sort of pomposity of Hollywood stars in, in his production. Whereas what Chris Rock did was turned up, made a joke about a film that must be at least 25 years old, was never, was not, was, was not, it's not regarded as one of Demi Moore's great performances. You know, it's a sort of, no. it's a another Demi Moore film. And it's, it's, and it's one it's one of Ridley Scott's most disposable films as well. Yeah, it's, and that's it's, saying something, because Ridley Scott, Fantastic director though he is, he is very up and down. What's, yeah. Ridley, what's Ridley Scott's rap career like? Um, uh, I, I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm not really familiar with his early work. <laughs> I'm not going to live that down, am I? <laughs> Sorry, carry on, Simon. You try so, to show people you have a cultural hinterland and they just throw it back in your again, face. Sorry, sorry, Simon. I love that again. Your you're the your example of your cultural hinterland is Will Smith's songs from the 90s. I mean, at least, at least I, I saw a, at least I saw this weekend went to see a film that had some Oscar nominations. But um Oh, what was that? Uh The Worst Person in the World. Oh, was that any uh, good? Yeah, it's really nice. Would, would they, recommend. Were they if, so bad that you felt like you wanted to slap them in the face? Uh, no, no, I would. Um, no, they were delightful and slightly quirky. And the Danish art house movie. By it's the way. Norwegian. Um, Norwegian, sorry. You say you say potato. I say potato. 
I am not getting involved in that. I am data linguist, so I'm not getting involved in any disagreements about the difference of Scandinavian languages. Um, but but surely, but surely she knows more than anybody that the only unique language in Europe is Finnish. Um, I am look if she because it's it's not she, it's not Indo-European, is it? It's like the only non-Indo-European. Well, no, I thought that I, actually. I think the same. It's also true that's of, also true of Hungarian. Yeah, I'm going to say I think the same thing is true of Hungarian. Yeah, they're both fucking weird, basically. Oh dear! Oh, there we are. I've broken the uh, the seat there. Yeah, but I, I thought I thought that like. The joke that Chris Rock made was attacking someone for essentially a disability, using a reference that's 25 to 30 years old to a film no one can really remember in a way that was unnecessary, unpleasant and didn't like it, is, it was such a soft. It's such a sort of soft target. It's not you're not sort yeah. of achieving anything by, you know, going, hey, Jada hey. but I also think that like. I, I'm never, you know, I, I don't think that Will Smith then looked, you know, by by attacking someone, you know, live on television around the world and, you know, all that stuff. It's not, I don't think he gave a particular, I don't think, you know, I'm not going to stand there and go, oh, well, you know, what what uh, what Will Smith did was all, all you know, was a brilliant thing to do. I don't think it's ever a brilliant thing. Partly, and this is this is a point made by a colleague of mine rather than, than so I'm not going to try and claim it just myself, but... I don't know what you will, but as someone who is mildly interested in films, you know, I listen to the to the Kermode film program. I go and see a few films a, in a year in the cinema. You know, I didn't know that Jada Pinkett Smith had alopecia, something she's clearly quite sensitive about. Um, and now it's totally unavoidable. You know. Yeah. It wasn't. You know. So so a thing that she probably felt quite uncomfortable about is now headline news around the world. I will. I will say. I will say this. If I if I was the person in charge of security at the Oscars, I would imagine that I would have gotten called in for a meeting without biscuits this morning. I mean that that is it's yeah. a bit worrying. It's a bit worrying that you can just you can just walk up to the stage like that without anybody trying to intercept you at all. He is Will well, Smith, though. Well, it's not, yeah. it's not some random scrub. Yeah. But even so, you shouldn't really be able to do that. No, and someone, someone on Twitter had said some hours before, gosh, looking at the way that stage is designed, you really could get up there and really fuck things, really, you know, really do some damage <laughs> if you wanted to. Um, and, and then and then someone just replied with, with sort of a meme of like Twitter people having fun and then Apollo, Apollo prophecies coming true. I mean... <laughs> The reality, but the reality of the situation is that, like, it's the Oscars. Um, the Matt, I, I very rarely uh, quote Matt Chorley in a praiseworthy way, but I'm going to for once here. He said basically, this is the Oscars is base is basically Hollywood's works Christmas party, <laughs> and we've all decided that you know it's vitally important and. You know, as someone who does more quizzing than is in any way healthy, I will go and learn the list. Entertain, entertainingly, uh, someone who is in our quiz team WhatsApp group, but is not doesn't play for us regularly, but is just a friend, um, did say, can everyone not mention anything about the Oscars for 24 hours? Because I'm trying to, you know, I'm going to be away and I want, to, I want to sit down and watch it when I get the chance. 
how successfully he did the likely lads bit on the most <laughs> talked about Oscar ceremony of my lifetime, I don't know. But like, you know, it, in the end, the list of Oscar winning films is a canon of sorts. It's an interesting opportunity for debate. Basically. I think I, I think I've seen one of the Oscar nominated films this year. You know, for be- for best picture. Was it June? Um, no, it wasn't June. Uh, it was Licorice Pizza, which again was nice and quite was interesting, and you know. And, I. Sorry, go on, Simon. And 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 you know, will I will I try and catch Coda? Maybe I think it's very nice, actually. I think the I th- conspiracy theory time. I think the Oscars knew this was going to happen, because. So you have the most dramatic thing to happen in the Oscars in my lifetime. Then the thing that is meant to be the high point, the highlight of the evening, the awarding of Best Picture, is both literally, figuratively, and metaphorically a coda. Whoa. 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 Um, On the Oscars, I, I think, I can't remember who was saying it. I saw someone say this on Twitter. There is something weird going on that as the Oscars clearly becomes less relevant, Mm. The combined box office take, um, both as an absolute figure and as a, as, a, as an as an a percentage of all box office take, um, is is never been lower. The viewing figures are lower than they've been previously. The amount of coverage she gets off the press, particularly the American press, is way higher. And I don't know whether it's just one of these ones where things like live blogs. Things like um, predict- uh, predictions and previews have just became a bigger part of the media ecosystem, and the Oscars is very well suited to that. But like the the problem with the Oscars, and this is um, um, a point that Ross Dowhart's been making for forever, is that your middle brow blockbuster, which you know at its peak is something like The Godfather, you know at its worst is you know, no, I suppose something like the Green Book, actually, um, but like much more successful at the box office. That stuff just doesn't really get made very much anymore. Like, um, you know, the Godfather would be made now, like a book that had been that successful about gangsters, it would be a HBO or Netflix a streaming series, and they'd spin it out for about five or six seasons at least. Um, and so the Oscars struggles because it, 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 it is increasingly faced with this choice between, oh, we're either going to have to really lower our standards to let like some super Marvel movie in and give it to Marvel, which we really don't want to do. Or we're going to have to give it to a movie that hardly anybody has seen. And there's not oh, you really... Do like the, you do like the fans vote. Like they did, and that got hijacked by a load of Zack Zach, uh, Snyder fans. Well, anybody who's ever, like that's just that just shows you how clueless the Oscars are, but the Academy is because anybody who's had any involvement in like pop culture or online votes since like the dawn of the internet knows that they are very vulnerable to those sorts of campaigns. If it hadn't been Zack Snyder's lot, it'd have been somebody else. Um, like they used to be, they used to be like, um, fairly prestigious uh, British Comic Awards and they just they 2000 AD would just always win them because as the only 
actually British comic going up from, with the other candidates being Americans. 2000 AD would be the only comic actually put in the um, voting form in its pages. Um, and so it's just one of those ones where it's like, the type of movie the Oscars is comfortable celebrating doesn't really exist. And when it does exist, it tends to be sci-fi or sci-fi adjacent. And the Oscars is all, has always been leery about sci-fi. Like, like I'm sure the only Oscars movie I've watched this year is June. Um, and June was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, but I think, and it, and it, and it dominated all the technical awards, but there was no way that was ever getting best picture. I think, I think it's a really, I think, so I was just, I was, I just had the Wikipedia list of, um, you know, best picture winners. I think the last time you could really say that an Oscar best picture winner was a genuine box office smash was the last Lord of the Rings film, which won in 2003. Since then, they've all been, and I, these, that some of these are films I have seen and really enjoyed. I think, I, you know, I, like many people, I thought Par Parasite was brilliant. Um, I've, I really enjoyed Spotlight when I caught up with that. You know, 12 Years a Slave was a major piece. I was, can't say I really enjoyed it, but it was a, you know, hugely important and brilliantly done film. But none of those are, you know, none of, the, none of those are box office sort of films. But in in odd way, now I think the, the the it may be the best picture Oscar has fundamentally changed its role in pop culture society, right? It now ha now has a very similar it now feels like it has a similar role to the role the Booker Prize has in literature in the UK and Ireland, um, which is why which is to is to say this is a brilliant book you haven't read because. You know, it's not written by either Richard Osman or David Walliams, who seem to be the only people who actually sell books in the UK anymore. But really, you, you like winning the Booker Prize now, you normally get more than double your sales in one week that you've had in the entire print run so far. And so it now feels like the Best Picture Oscar, giving it to something like Coda or Parasite or um, Nomadland, you know, those three last three winners... They were all basically, they're all, they all feel like the filmic establishment going, this is a really good film you probably haven't got around to seeing yet. You really should. This is really good. But does it actually work? Because, I mean, I think one of the things that's, that strike when you go through this list is it doesn't feel like it endures. Like, I, I, I think this is a problem. It's like the Oscars is not designed to be the Booker Prize. This is not awarded by a jury um it's it, it it is like on mainstream television in the states in prime time you know it's meant to be a bit glitzy and I, and I think there just fundamentally is a thing of you know at some point either either the oscars makes its peace with giving things to superhero movies um or it does something else, and I'm not sure what that other thing would be. I, I, like, I don't know if it'd be something radical by letting shorter streaming... You no, know it would actually be good. If they said a streaming series that was under six hours could, um, or even under four and a half hours, could go, go for an Oscar, because that, that would hopefully stop the Netflix bloat 
that is like the like, like the, the one downside of like the streaming era is that things that should have been movies are turned into six hour um uh, dr- uh drama serials things that should have been six hour drama serials are turned into 12 hour drama serials and things that should have been 12 hour drama serials get four seasons and numerous spin-offs um yeah but i don't know i mean you look at this i mean this is weird isn't it because like this year you would say the most oscar movie would be probably don't look up which was on netflix and actually this is one thing we should say about coda getting it this is the first streaming movie to get an os to get best picture and i'm and it is if they had to do it denying netflix the uh kudos of uh getting the first streaming film to win best picture i'm sure please the academy very much I mean, it's not. It's. I mean, it's. I mean, I feel it's worth saying because it will get. It will. It obviously is going to get. You know, lost in all the uh, slap coverage. Like nobody saw Coda get. No one saw this coming. I mean, it was not like it was not. It was not talked about in the. I. In the I short saw. List, I, I saw some late shift the, the the last few days before. So I think it was one of those. Corbin in 2017 it was a complete long shot and by the time it got to the the, the, the eve it was a mild long shot like mm, the, the okay. odds had the odds had come in um I, th- I think I think the weird thing actually is 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 um I saw quite I saw a few people say this the power of the dog which bizarrely has um uh, Benedict Cumberbatch trying to play an American again why America? Why? With his weirdly, with his weirdly flat mid Atlantic accent. Why? Three hundred and thirty million of you. Can you not find one of them? Um, th- that just seemed to fall away like the yeah. last month, month or so. Um, and I, and I, we have to remember, like the reason why Rock got onto the riff of making fun of people's spouses was because of the power of the dog. It's because of the whole drama with. Uh, Jane Champion and um, um, uh, James Cameron. No, that can't be. Is that is Jane? No, Champion? that's not right. Is it, uh, is, is it Jane Champion? No, it's not Jane Champion. It's the one who won it first. Champion. Bigelow. You know, it's Catherine Bigelow who is, is Cameron. Yeah, oh, Catherine I'm, oh, I'm, I'm misremembering. The, fir- the, fir- the first woman to uh, the first woman to be a bit win. I'm, I'm misremembering them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> James Cameron and Jane Champion. That would be an interesting marriage. That would be. That would be. I don't know where I got. It. I I know there was a, something he did with Power of the Dog that that began that whole riff. Well, isn't, I, it, I, that, isn't it that that no? Because the leading was like Javier Bardem and his wife had both been nominated for Oscars in different categories. No, you're it's right. Like, you're yeah. right. This, this is why I shouldn't podcast on four hours sleep. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Anyway, any fine? I mean, we should say, we should say, violence be bad. Don't yeah. do, don't do violence, people. Don't do cruel jokes. Um, and just think, Will Smith has embarrassed himself and his family, and all that will keep him happy tonight is his many millions and millions and millions. How do you, how do you sleep at night on top of a pile of money with many, <laughs> many beautiful ladies? <laughs> also, go and listen to Willow Smith's 
album and tell me what tell me what genre you think it fits in. Well, I, I, I don't. I don't know if it if it if it defies your ability to to define musical genre. I'm not sure me and Simon will be up for the task, Luke. It's really good. In all seriousness, it's a very good album. And this from the girl who you know started her musical career with with your hair. Just goes to show. <laughs> anyway, on, on more on more depressing uh, backhands from reality. <laughs> Um, the England cricket team did not do well this weekend. Um, Simon... this, is, this is a guitar solo by Will because me and Simon have nothing to add. Here. Yeah, Simon doesn't know. Luke doesn't care. Um, uh-huh. oh. Basically, um, back. I mean, you remember this, Luke, because we we went to one of these games back in back going into 2013. England had a really good test side. And then we decided to play two back-to-back mashes, ten tests in succession against Australia, five five at home, five away, and we broke a very good side, which afterwards was always mediocre. Last year, a very mediocre side entered a run where they would play four tests against India um, away, two tests against New Zealand um, um, at home, Five tests against India at home, although they only played four of them. Five tests against Australia away, which, you know, which means 15 tests against the three best sides in the world. And what has happened is a team that was mediocre beforehand is now crap. Like, this team is broken. the, the, The players are clearly shot. And... Joe Root, I've, I've put this on Twitter a few times now, but like watching Joe Root try every trick in the book to stay England captain really makes me appreciate Kevin Keegan. Because when Kevin Keegan lost to Germany back in 2001 in the, in the last game at Old Wembley, um, it wasn't a thumping, it was a close loss. You know, it's, it's Germany, Germany a good side. This is when Germany used to beat us more often than not. He was just like, I can't do this. I can't do this. Like, there's no point me kidding myself. There's no point me trying to prolong this. I am not good enough for this role. I'm quitting. And you literally had bots from the FA desperately trying to persuade him to stay on. And he was just like, no, I'm not going to hang on for a settlement. I'm not going to hang on and wait to be drummed out. I know I'm not good enough. I care about this side. I'm going. And what integrity that is. What integrity from Kevin Keegan to look himself in a mirror, to know he's not good enough and to walk away because he cares more about the team than his own ego or his own position. Joe Root has none of that. Joe Root has clearly been making decisions for the past few months to protect his position as England Test captain. The dropping of Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad, the moving himself up to number three, um, some of the other selection decisions he's made. None of these, you no, know, Russian Ben Stokes back to Australia when Ben Stokes was clearly not fit. None of these made sense on sporting grounds, but they made sense in, in terms of either bolstering his position, making them seem more dynamic, or removing the most credible um, alternatives, um, credible internal critics of this Roots Stokes regime. And it's pathetic. You know, we are now bottom 
of the World Test Championship, we have a winning percentage that is barely half of Bangladesh. And the reality of the situation is, is we are by far the per capita richest side in international cricket. Yes, the Indians get more in their TV deal. Yes, the Indians get more in their sponsorships. But no, the Indians don't make the money from ticket sales that England does. And of course, you know, that money the Indians make has to be spent across a massive country and a very poor country as well. Whereas we are a, a, a very compact country um, that, you know, that, that this money can be invested in more efficiently. You know, we are the envy in the world in terms of the contracts our test players can get, in terms of the facilities they get to play in, in terms of the analysis and the coaching um, they receive. And yet we're bottom. We are bottom. And, you know, the, the Windies always perform well against England. But the reality is they, 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 they were not, their last home series, they were not able to come away with a victory against Sri Lanka at home. It's so pathetic. And then you get Joe Root going, oh, well, I, I think I've answered enough questions about my captaincy. Fuck off. Fuck the right off. You have now gone five series in a row and you've lost them all. You, you, um, you have won. No, the side has won one test out of 18. This is, this is, no, one test out of 17. This is incredibly pathetic. This is, I mean, I, I wasn't an England fan during the dark days of the 90s, but like since I became a big fan of cricket in 2005, this is easily the lowest ebb um, English cricket spin. Yes, the structural issues. Yes, the ECB has made a mess of all sorts of um, issues to do with the structure and the schedule. But at some point, Joe Root has to take some um, ownership and so, and show some integrity and admit he's not good enough. Um, and all, but, but it was good to see uh, Josh De Silva get a century. A, because I've heard him on the Caribbean Cricket Podcast be interviewed and he seems like a nice guy. Um, it's always nice to see someone get a a, a, a initial uh, home test century, and um, it freaks my 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 stepson out to have a white West Indian um, 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 who know who talk who talks like somebody from Trinidad. So three great reasons to celebrate Justice Silver's success. <laughs> speaking speaking of some speaking of somebody else who's just not good enough, um, Rishi Sunak had a. Uh, spring statement. Yes, Simon. As as um as the president of the it could, it could be Rishi Sunak's fan club. If we oh, change yeah. all our if we change all our personalities and the very fabric of reality, um, <laughs> what, what what do you make of the of the spring statement? I mean, I, I just it, it's strange. We're, we're talking about this nearly a week after, sort of week after it's happened, and 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 you know things go on, and it's but the fact we're not. I don't. There's so little to remember in it. Is I think indicative of of it was just. It's very. You know, we are facing. You know, economic crisis upon economic crisis upon economic crisis. You know, re- reality is. You know, we never really got. We never fully. There was never a full. There was never a full blown recovery from the economic crisis of two thousand eight. What do we say there was, and then we voted for Brexit. Well, I didn't want to bring that up because you know. Um, 
I, it was just, although, you know, it's interesting that Rishi Sunak couldn't, couldn't explain why the rest of Europe has had an import, import recovery, whereas for some reason the UK hasn't. Export yeah, recovery. and Will would say... I, I would say it's good. That's the Brexit I voted for. Yeah, that's the Brexit you voted for. Sort of, it's not the Brexit Rishi Sunak voted for, but it's a Brexit I voted for. It's weird, actually. I, 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 saw that, I saw you say that on Twitter. And just because it's such a contrary take. Do you want to explain why? Because if it, trade with other countries makes you reliant on other countries, and the more you trade with other countries, the more reliant you are with them. Um, so if you are voting for Brexit on grounds of national independence, national sovereignty, you should not want it. No, you should want it to be accompanied with a decline in trade. You know, we we import less, which is happening, and we export less, which is also happening. Now, I will say, I am not actually sure whether it's due to Brexit. Uh, the timings don't seem to work out right. It seems like it's more the rest of the world rather than Europe itself. Now, that may be because we're no longer like a cheap um, a cheap production centre for the EU, um, which had been the role we were playing in some instances. I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest, if part of the issue is the changes the government made to that, um, because it has got more difficult um, uh, to do business with Britain because of the uh, new and more complicated VAT rules. But fundamentally... I want to do less trade. You know, I, you know, if, if, if the public would let me, I, I, I would go full blown autarky. Um, that's never likely. Uh, yeah, get... but the thing is, Britain can't go full blown autarky. <laughs> we don't have the resources to do it. Oh, as, as close to full blown autarky as we can. But um, um, less trade, it makes me happy. Yeah, I mean, and the, the, thing, the thing is as well, the, I mean, not to. Not to sound like a complete headbanger, but the the flip side of that was that the, the, they don't talk about the fact that, that that production hasn't disappeared from the economy. So what you're actually saying is we've actually stimulated domestic production of a range of stuff to replace the stuff we were importing. Well, I, mean, I mean, sorry, sorry, we'll get back to being simple, but like this, like this is kind of the thing, isn't it? Like money has to go somewhere. So either you have, um, e- either you are importing a lot of stuff, or you're exporting a lot of stuff. Like, or you're you're you kind of balancing this or that. Like, yeah, ba- basically, trade it's not a very big part of the economy, and the smaller it is, the better because it means we're more we, we stand on our own two feet more. Sorry, Simon, the, the spring statement. After, like, your head has been... There. Yeah, that, that is an incredibly contrary take, so I just think we wanted to unpack it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I disagree with every single word of that, but that's fine. Um, okay, so, so, can, I, can, I, can I just say, Luke keeps saying I'm being contrary. This is an ideological, it's an ideological yeah, point. you have a yeah. position. I disagree yeah. with it, but it's a position. I think this is interesting. We've actually got... So why do you disagree with it? Because I'm being a nationalist goon. Well, yeah, because I don't. No, no, I, I, yeah. I, 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 because I don't. Because I don't. In, because in general terms, I don't believe that. You know, having separate, having. I think you know. In, I think in general terms, integrated economies are good things. I think that. You know, I just think. I think it's a. I think that's kind of just that. That's the way the economy is these days. I think you know. 
in, in some ways that's just you can't kind of it's always genius in the bottle you know we are the thing we know that the rise the rising of the right the right raising up of, of tariffs and barriers are, are are things that are are bad you know they are bad news economically because you want to have an you know having an interconnected world is is generally a good thing because it raise you know it it, it allows that sort of the proceeds of growth to spread globally i haven't i'm honest i haven't thought about this particularly i'm not going to sort of but I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I am, I'm generally always going. I am generally an internationalist. I don't, I don't really believe, and in, in the end, I don't really believe the nation state has a role in the 21st century. But, you know, because I think, I think, like steam engines, they were a really good idea in the 19th century. Um, but in, in, a, in a world where, you know, we have globalized businesses like Facebook or Microsoft or, you know, Walmart or whatever, I, I just don't believe that you can kind of you can put those barriers up between nation states in the way that, you know, Will would like to. I suppose, uh, you know, if, if you had, you know, British supermarkets doing, you know, Brit just doing British things, well, that's, you know, but that just feels like a fantasy, just feels like a fan an un unre unreachable fantasy. Land. I, I like, I, I do agree. Like, this is why I will take reduction in trade as a, as a second best alternative. But like you say, say nation states on the way out, but what about maniacal realms? What do you mean by maniacal realms? Ma maniacal way realms, but obviously Britain isn't a nation state. It's a multinational um, a polity under the under the Queen. Well, obviously, obviously, I abolished the Queen, but I understand <laughs> your point. Um, I, I look. Can we talk about the spring statement? Because you know, I, well, I, I, no, all right, then all right. Let's <laughs> let's, let's let's stop torturing Simon. I think that my. My feeling at the spring statement is here we are, we are facing, you know, after the major economic shock of coronavirus, we now have a major economic shock of the, you know, of the highest inflation rate, even before the Ukraine conflict, we were facing an inflation rate that was unseen in my lifetime, basically. No, it would have been this rate in, in, uh, at the end of Thatcher. Okay, okay. It got, it got round. So, it got round to eight, nine percent under Thatcher. Mm. But I mean, certainly in our sort of in, in your modern, lifetime as a consumer, anyway. In yeah, my, yeah, adult, my adult, in my in my actual adult lifetime, having to you know buy anything at all. Yeah, I I, I just I just remember James Forsyth said something stupid about how Thatcher vanquished inflation, and it's like I'd go back and check the figures for for nineteen ninety if I was you, James, because inflation came back. Yeah, sorry, sorry. And it, it is it is a and it is a crisis. It is particularly a an inflation crisis that is being uh, focused on some on some basics. Um, you know, energy prices are going up, and every you know, I mean, we're in a situation where basically some at some point in the next couple of days, um, the entire country is going to go and have to check their electricity meters to try and make sure they are getting as much electricity as they can. On a slightly lower rate, and that rate is going to get worse. And the response of Rishi Sunak was exactly what you would expect from Rishi Sunak. It was pathetic. It was it was a it was a water pistol to deal with a raging inferno. It it did not get anything. It did not begin to find a solution to the problem. You know, actually. 
you know, it it it, did, it has it does has done almost nothing to uh, alleviate, ameliorate the issues of the national insurance rise, which again will hit working people in the way it doesn't in a way it doesn't hit uh, pensioners and landlords. Um, he did they did nothing to look after to, to actually solve and to attempt to actually make people better in terms of their energy bills, and we are hearing from. Uh, Iceland supermarket this week that uh, there are food banks are now turning down the potato because people are worried about the cost of being able to actually cook them. Um, in cutting 5p off uh, fuel duty, I mean, firstly, that it feels to me goes right, while, whilst also basically making uh, TFL the largest public transport network in this country, basically beg for uh, for any for scraps on an almost sort of monthly basis, um, essentially for the temerity that Londoners keep voting for Labour mayors. Um, but the, the, that goes mass, goes against sort of any environmental targets, but also it won't work because, you know, we know that fuel prices are through the roof. So it's very unlikely, it's very unlikely that we're going to see anything like the 5p cut in uh, fuel duty be passed on to the consumer even if that's what you think is the best policy to do. Um, he is, and on, on sort of other things, we've heard recently that he seems to think that uh, putting up our own solar and wind panel power is not actually, you know, isn't a cost inefficient solution, whilst also basically people pointing at the figures and going, Rishi, the best thing you could do is get a load of fields and put some solar panels in them. You know, it's, you know, this is the thing when people talk about, Sorry, I'm slightly going off topic now, but like there are some people who talk when with dealing with the energy crisis about, oh, scrapping net zero. Scrapping net zero has cost the consumer money. You know, the best thing we could do if we want to, A, try and deal with our own energy costs and B, handle then try and actually, you know, cock a snoop to Vladimir Putin is to actually have our own energy sources I don't think that works for Putin because you remember Russia is the source of the rare metals you need for things like solar panels like it's a better argument against the Saudis but Russia will still be important for the production of things like solar panels yeah this is this is I mean we're going to talk about Ukraine later on but this is the annoying thing about sanctioning Russia it has so much stuff in terms of natural resources that the rest of the world wants and needs. And apart from apart from probably Australia, there's no other... Uh, Australia and the Democratic Republic of Congo, there really isn't another nation on the planet that has the range and depth of natural resources that Russia does. Now, that's partly because Russia is bloody huge. How you know? huge? Bloody huge. Six time zones worth of bloody huge. I think it's one in eight of every square mile on planet of land on planet Earth is part of Russia. I mean, if Simon thought he was getting to ease of things, uh, oh boy, you wait until hear my take on this. Just one, sorry, just one quick factual thing. He he did actually do a very important thing. A very expensive thing to correct my correction on national insurance, which he raised the threshold. So, like two thirds 
of that increase you know that 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 is taking place on the 1st of april will be unwound by the 1st of july um and it's a lot of money like i think it, I, I think it is like they've spent 6 billion on raising the threshold and it's, it's a like, worthwhile thing to do but it's not the best thing to do now because that no. most that mostly benefit that mostly benefits that mostly is taking money from people at the bottom end of national insurance contributions and giving it towards the people in the middle. And so, and it's one of these things. Where that six billion would have made more sense just so whack on universal credit. Yeah. Um, you will remember this, Luke, because I was talking to you about this. You know, back when I was a more reliable Labour partisan in like 2010, 2011, I, I realised then that this universal credit thing that Ian Duncan Smith was trying to implement was actually quite cool. Like, oh, and a, a personal allowance for benefits. This yeah, make a... it's like, I, I've, never, I've never understood why Labour hasn't, hasn't like, really endorsed universal credit. Because you use it, you use it right. That's a really simple tool for massive redistribution. And it, and it means you are bringing together everybody who gets benefits so they become a single political constituency rather yeah, I've, than I've, I've, I've never i've never i i think it was just because ian duncan smith yeah. introduced it like the knee-jerk reaction well to be, i think i think, I I think also it, thought it, sorry no no I, mean, I, I think i think there is the knee-jerk reaction thing but it's also it was so badly done it became certainly among you know for a yeah. lot of benefit claimants, it became a swear word. And, you know, therefore it becomes a stick with which to beat the government. But I think the thing that would probably have had, I think if Labour had come in in 2015, you would have ended up getting something which, you know, whoever the work and pension secretary in that government would have been, would have gone, we have scrapped universal credit and we've replaced it with galaxy credit. Um, I, I think I think the, the new name. In... I think the thing is, Ian Smith did add a few things. So, like, obviously, there's the fact that the Treasury underfunded it, but he did also add things that made it less appealing to Labour. The big one was the the thing that actually caused people the most problems as they got shifted to, to universal credit was moving from weekly to uh, monthly payments. Mm. And there's been research in this in America that it's a bad idea. It creates this feast and famine. Um, 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 issue where people have no money at the end of one period and then they spend too much money to make up for like what they've borrowed or what they've gone without in the weeks leading up to the payment. He also switched ahead of the household payments rather than it going automatically uh, uh, to, to, to mothers. Which meant, which which increased the risk of financial coercion, so that there were things built into the system because of, you know, in Duncan Smith, in Duncan Smith, that were unappealing to Labour. But I agree with you, and I and I think you no, know, at some point they will move towards fix, don't end, and maybe that'll involve a rebrand. But to go to inflation, look, the the, the big issue of inflation is there are two types of inflation. There is um, um, inflation caused by um, supply side or demand side shocks. So like you're either not producing enough of something or there's too much demand of something due to stuff that is like inherent to that commodity. And there's a lot of that at the moment, you know, because of coronavirus, the kind of 
what we want from the economy has changed. So, you know, like we are, we are all ordering in more things than we used to, and that creates pressure. Because of coronavirus, particularly the situation in China, there are all these supply bottlenecks. Um, and obviously, we are now getting this issue with, with, with Russia and all the supply bottlenecks that will cause. But obviously, you also have monetary inflation when there is just too much money sloshing around in the system. And if you, so there's this thing called nom, uh, nominal GDP. A nominal GDP is GDP without all the complicated maths. It is basically no attempt to control for inflation. It's how many pounds, how many dollars, how many pennies, how many cents, how much money is in the economy. And the remarkable thing is that we are already ahead of where we were before coronavirus in terms of how much money is in the economy. And the reason why this is a problem is if people have money, which people do, but no, not everybody, obviously, but most people do have money because the state moved in in an unprecedented way to stop the recessions caused by the coronavirus lockdowns impoverishing people. If people have money, um, they will respond to... Uh, demand shocks, supply shocks, by spending the extra money. You know, if people don't have the money and they are told, oh, to buy this car, to buy this food, to buy this restaurant meal, you're going to have to pay more money, they will not pay for it, you know, they, and that will then mean eventually, at some point, prices have to come down. But if people pay it, you then go down the route of inflationary expectations getting back into the system. Because people have paid the extra money, businesses realize they can charge more. People pay the extra amount. Pe people then start expecting prices to go up. But so they become even less inclined to haggle and more inclined to take the prices given. So people have even more interest in paying the money. Ultimately, that will feed into wage uh, negotiations and so people start demanding more money because people are getting more weight more money and wages prices have to go up and you start to have an inflationary spiral and the problem is the only way we know to stop an inflationary cycle is for central banks to apply the choke chain which is using interest rate rises to cause an, a recession um, the problem with Rishi Sunak, the problem with all uh, countries at the moment, is no one wants to pull the choke chain because the whole reason we spent all the money on things like furlough was not to have a recession that impoverished millions. And if you let the central banks, if you tell the central banks to pull the choke chain, you will have that recession. You will have two, three million people unemployed. Something that for all the issues we've had with the financial crisis and with coronavirus and now with the war in Ukraine is something we have not had in this country since the early 90s. Um, and I, the problem with the Conservative Party is 
they do not know whether they want um, the Bank of England to pull that choke chain. They do not know whether it has gone to the point that inflation is so out of control that it is time to actually have, you know, the Volcker shock, the induced recession to get this under control. Um, and the measures they have announced um, are not just insufficient, they are probably actively harmful. Subsidizing motorists to, 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 to keep spending as much as they are doing on petrol does not help the, 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 the descent, stop the descent into inflationary, um, 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 inflationary spiral. The, the giving people a little bit more money, you know, primarily middle class people like ourselves, a little bit more in their pay packet does not stop, does not help us become more physically physically fiscally disciplined. The only thing I think the government could have done to to hope to make some impact uh, in the immediate term and maybe ward off a really nasty induced recession was a huge swathe of tax rises to hit, um, you know, basically people like ourselves and those who are richer. Um, some of that money spent on um, closing the deficit, because if there is too much money sloshing around in the system, which there is, you need to take that money out of the system urgently and then use some of the money to increase universal credit. I don't know if that would work, but it might work. But what they're doing now, not only will it not work, it will be actively harmful. This is going to get a lot worse. I mean, I haven't really, I haven't really thought about this because I haven't really had the headspace uh, to think about this. But surely the problem is that inflation isn't, it's not really, inflation isn't really being caused. I mean, the thing is, this is inflation being caused by shocks to the real no, economy. No, you look at nominal GDP, the money in the economy has already rebounded back to pre-pandemic. Yeah, but it's, it's, more, it's, it's more money chasing fewer real goods. But... But it's still more money. The only way you're going to stop it now is to reduce how much money. Because the thing is, you can't solve those supply chain issues in That's six true. months, in a year. That's true. This this is why recessions usually are recessions, because it's 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 a way of... We've we basically got half a recession because things are not being produced to the same extent. Um yeah, like I am not normally the person saying. I'm going to say you'll go. Will Cooling is going for deficit reduction. My God, Duncan's horses are going to eat each other. Yeah, but because because you have to suck this money out of the economy. Like of, the economy is overheating. It doesn't feel like it. Yeah, I'm going to say it doesn't happening. feel like it. But that is what is happening. Well, that's depressing. Thanks for that. Well, yeah, I, say, I, 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 yeah, I felt pretty bad about the spring state, but I now feel a lot worse. So that's good. And, 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 I mean, and I, uh, but it's, it's, worse, it's worse than you think, Simon, because... It's always really, worse than I think. That's, that's, really, because that's really, literally... If you, go back, if you go back over what Will's just said, this is less Rishi Sunak than... The fact that any conservative chancellor, scratch that, any chancellor, 
would have been in a completely clutch stick if Will is right. Yeah, I mean, this is where, I mean, it was a terrible joke, but um, Rachel Reeves, um, he's, he's Edward Heath with an iPad. Terrible joke. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't help labor. But this idea that this is basically the barber boom, that you have responded to, um, to overheated demand, to supply shocks, to demand shocks, by just pumping more money into the economy, which is what Sunak's done. Um, and let's face it, he didn't really have, he didn't have a choice. No, well, this is the thing, like, I, this, this is the thing, like, because you... I mean, that's why it's not the barber boom. Well, no, it is the barber boom, because, he, I mean, barber probably didn't have much of a choice either. Um, the, the reality of the situation is, it... it we are we are at some point either going to have a real inflationary problem, or the or the, the the central banks of not just ourselves but the EU and and America are going to do what they normally do, and um, I would like to avoid that, but the only way you can avoid that is by taking money out of the economy, and that is that, and the only way you can do that is is within with tax rises. But like, yeah, but that, good, that, luck that, get, good luck getting that. Well, 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 quite. And I and I think and I think this is I think one of the interesting things is, I don't know about what you guys feel, but it feels like from politicians, even on the Labour side, people seem to have a lot of sympathy for Sunak, as in, rather you than me. There is probably no good thing um, you could do at this position, and it's interesting that going into this spring statement, the Tories were actually doing a bit better in the polls. I wonder if it's going to start having a dynamic we had in the Brown government where they, Labour would be recovering until Alistair Darling got up and spoke at, a spring, at an autumn statement or at a budget. Not because Alistair Darling was necessarily doing things wrong, although I think he was, but because those big financial set pieces just focus people's attention on the economy and that was clearly a weak spot for the government. I think there's... Yeah. Sorry, you go ahead, Sam. No, I, th- I think there's a lot of truth. I, I think the sympathy for Rishi Sunak is wearing off. I mean, the, the headlines from this year, through the spring statement were... Oh, no, I, I mean politicians. No, politicians. I wow. don't think you get the... I don't think you get the, the, the virulent condemnation from politicians you're getting from everybody else. Mm. I, I think politicians know he's he's got he's he's in he's in a no win situation. That's a fair, yeah, yeah. Like the public clearly hates him. Like he's not going to be prime minister. Yeah, and I mean this is this this is where he this is where coronavirus politically has made a rod for his back. Because once you get into the habit of woo money, woo free money, woo support for him. Everybody, the whole time, it sort of creates expectations that you can just wave a magic wand and you know the magic money tree will, you know, yeah, descend. But I mean, actually, free money for everybody is the last thing you want to be doing right now. I think I think Will is right that like the the spending decisions that were made again. I haven't thought about this as much as I should have done if we were going to do this podcast. But hell, there is a war on. Um, I, I can't believe I actually said that. <laughs> Kim, haven't you heard? There are people dying. 
I mean, yeah. Um, <coughs> things are going, things are going boom, people. Things are going boom on a large scale. Um, but yeah, <coughs> I think the problem is. <coughs> Excuse me. Rishi Sunak has had very limited room for manoeuvre. Fine. But he used it poorly. Yeah. And he's not going to... he hasn't no... supported the people that need the most support. And he's clearly got no strategy. And, like, to be fair, mm. Labour, doesn't, Labour doesn't either. But, like, this type of thing needs a strategic response. Um, and I don't think but there the, is one. The, 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 thing, the thing that... The, the thing that makes this different from the financial crisis is that the financial crisis, ultimate, you know, ultimately is ultimately is about political is ultimately is about solving that is ultimately about political will, because it it's not a problem that it's not a problem that exists in the real tangible no. world. The government controls the money. As long as the government says money exists yeah, and exists. Per- persuades people, it means that the problem is solved. Yeah. And I and where, I think where, this is the thing, is isn't the it? You you fight the, you fight the, the sorry, sorry Luke, the problem is is you fight the last war that people have taken that lesson and applied it to coronavirus, where they're coming up against actual limitations, physical limitations. Yeah, well, it's not just COVID. It's it's the war in Ukraine. It's the supply. It's the supply. Um, it's the supply. It's the supply disruption. Yeah, I mean that. That this is the thing. So Rishi, Rishi Sunak can't. Rishi Sunak can't do what Gordon Brown did because that. You know, like you say, you are you are literally bumping up against the world of physical reality. Right, before we move, on, I've got one more thing to uh, one more topic just to quickly talk about before we go into Ukraine and Luke can do his solo. But I do want to just make one more point about this. This could get even worse than I just laid out. If we are on the cusp of decoupling from China, <coughs> then we might be going back to per- to to constantly battling high in- uh, high inflation. Because if you think about it, like I was mentioning at the point that James Forsyth said, Margaret Thatcher defeated inflation and the inflation goblin was never heard of again. And it's like, well, that's not true. You know, she didn't defeat the inflation goblin. Inflation was back at like eight, nine percent um, in 1990. Um, inflation also came back in 1992. Um, what actually killed inflation was the integration of China um, and other um, second world countries into global capitalism <clears throat> because it meant um, it meant cheaper cheaper production of materials because um, that's what gave you the great moderation it wasn't monetarism it wasn't inflation targeting because when that was tried in the late 70s 80s and it and it gave you boom and bust. You know, you you would have these induced recessions every now and again to stop the economy overheating. Um, yeah, if 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 we are looking at um, um, a decoupling from China, that 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 may have quite profound implications for the type of economy you have. Now, but one one thing actually, the go- the government could be doing is looking at ways to encourage people 
to use less um, less energy, less fuel. So, for example, why aren't we having uh, statements being put out encouraging people to work from home? You know, if there is an issue with the cost of fuel, if there is an issue with um, how much it, uh, with 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 uh, with too much high uh, demand, why not encourage people to askew the commute if they absolutely can? You know, these are the type of things on the margins they could be doing, but they don't want to. Well, I mean, it, they they wouldn't do that because it would seem. I mean, it would seem like and not such a sort of massive contradiction to their to the last few months of messaging of everyone should commute all the time yeah. and, and i'm not saying that and yeah but i mean we, we and also we don't live in a society anymore where i think i'm not sure how much people would listen to i don't know government let's say public service announcements of you know remember to switch the telly off at the end of the day or whatever um i'm just not i'm just not sure that we live in, a, in that kind of media landscape so, so, okay, so, summing up this section of the podcast, things suck. Things they suck. suck for a while, and they're about to get worse. That's pretty much it. And they have. This is. This is. I think this is. The, and I think. I mean, I don't have an answer, but like, we're all of. I mean, you. You know, we're all of that sort of age that we all graduated essentially into the into the post financial crisis recession. Um, yeah, from different, from different. Speak, for, you, speak for yourself, Simon. I, I, functionally, I never graduated. Of well, fine, but like, I know. graduated last year when they finally kicked me out. But like, okay, but I think for those of us of that generation, born in the late nineteen eighties, you know, I can't. You were born in the late nineteen eighties, Luke. I was okay, born uh, in 1983, so I'm saying uh, mid 80s. Early mid 80s, <laughs> yes, fair point. But, um, but I, like, most of us haven't had, you know, oh my, my God, adult so sorry, life, Simon. Sorry, sorry. I basically haven't had any a piece of good economic news. <sighs> you know, and I think, uh, yeah, I suppose. I suppose. I mean. We did, we did have, but by European standards, a very strong recovery from the financial crisis, um, despite David Cameron and George Osborne's best efforts, uh, which I still maintain, actually, although austerity was bad and a mistake, I think it's more the, the stuff they said upon becoming uh, the government, that, and it just spooked all private companies um I, I think they could have done the same policies they've just been a bit more boosterish in may june july of 2010 we'd have had a, a significantly better economy because you look bizarrely when you've just had a conservative government take over economic confidence absolutely plummets in 2010 because they they do a load of scaremongering about how we're on the brink of being greece Uh, yeah. I mean, because this, this is one of the things Cameron Osborne never understood. The point, the point, no, this is according to factorism and monetarism, the point of government austerity is it makes it easier for the private sector to borrow. Whereas they seem to have, particularly Cameron, actually, bizarrely, they seem to have this idea 
that everybody should be as austere as possible. The government should be austere, individuals should be austere, companies should be austere, everybody should be trying to cut their, to cut their borrowing, their debt as aggressively as possible. Um, um, and again, it, it just shows one of the issues with this Tory party over the past 12, 13 years is, well, they began as all tactics, no strategy. Now they're all gimmicks, no tactics. Um, but there's not been any strategic thinking behind this government and the economy um, since Gordon Brown left. Arguably, I mean, arguably since he <coughs> left, uh, arguably since he left the Treasury. To be honest, I mean, I mean the one, the one thing, the one thing, the one thing, the one thing I will say, Simon, is I think you and me, and I think you're in a slightly different social bracket um, than myself and Will. Because we live on the teeth of the public sector. Oh, yeah. Well, no. I, I'm, I'm more thinking that, that I, correct me if I'm wrong, Will, but I think this is true of you as well. We are both the first graduates in our respective families. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. So... I, th- I think I, 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 this, I think this is perhaps why, why we come out in slightly different places, Simon. So if I look back on what my dad was earning at his point in his career and what I am earning now, I am doing substantially, my standard of living is substantially higher than that of my parents. And I suspect the same would be true of you, Will. It, 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 I might be against the point where my dad's business takes off, but put it this way, he was working a lot harder for his money than I do. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's, yeah. So, no. uh, and he then has, obviously, the 90s where things go pretty badly. So, so yeah, like, I have a much more comfortable, higher sort of living than my dad did. Yeah, so, so I, I think, I think, in a, I think in a weird way, because of where, because of that sort of social background, Simon, I think me and Will have a tendency to be more optimistic about this stuff than you do. Which is why it's such a downer when I'm the one being miserable about the economy. Yeah. So you were saying, Simon? Yeah, but I mean, with the best one, I mean, okay, you're not, that's not massively unusual, but it's probably more unusual for our generation than the generation before us. That's true. That's no, true. No, the big expansion, there, there was a big expansion because what might, 92, I suppose, post-92. Yeah, so you had the 92 expansion, but even, like, the robs was what my my parents would have gone... If they'd, if they'd gone to uni, they'd have been looking to go to uni late 70s, early 80s. There was expansion throughout the 80s as well, and you remember the, the, there was a big expansion when Blair takes over as well, and um, because of tuition fees giving more funding, because you, ha- you have the... Sorry, this is me being a former higher education lad um you have the robbins expense you have the Atley government's expansion of universities which creates you no know, our alamata you no know, nottingham as a, as an independent institution you then have um the robbins expansion under wilson which creates things like loughborough university um and whilst you don't get men then obviously you have the clark expansion where the polytechnics are converted um, and then, although you don't get, bizarrely, you don't get many new universities. I'm not sure if you get any real substantial new universities under Blair, 
but like all universes expand almost all universes expand their numbers quite aggressively um so yeah there'll be lots of people who are first in their generation um um, yeah, um i mean um, odd, oddly i'm well my mum went to a polytechnic um before which wasn't university and my dad dropped out and I'm not sure my grandfather. So I think technically I'm the first person in my family to graduate from a university. Um, but I don't, I, it's not, it's absolutely not the same thing because. Can, like, does anybody know the only prime minister to have been to have gone to a polytechnic? Is it Neville Chamberlain? I'm only it is to... Neville Chamberlain. He went I'm to pl- make. He went I'm to playing Mason. The man, not the ball. <laughs> he went to Mason College, which was one of the institutions that was wound up into the University of Birmingham when it was founded. <laughs> Maidstone College. Mason, as in Maid- Mason oh, College. I was, I was about to make a very mean joke about Maidstone, um, <laughs> which is that yes, if I spent three my higher education years in Maidstone, I would also think the Nazis had the might 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 be worth <laughs> might be worth working with. Um, before we move on uh, to to Ukraine, I'm like Luke. I'm not sure what's more explosive, the fa- the farm sheds of Ukraine or Luke at the moment. Um, wait, waiting to talk about it. But um, Simon, as a British Republican, you don't get to see the royal family humiliated very often. How have you enjoyed the past week? I mean, it's very. I mean, it's very very funny. I assume that I am running the royal family's PR, the Duke of Cambridge's <laughs> PR campaign, which is strange because mostly I've been doing interviews for a popular canned meat product. Um, um, but like, I, I am, it is genuinely, if I was trying to run a campaign to make the, monarch, make the monarchy look like an out of touch and ridiculous institution, which the people of Jamaica should abolish as soon as possible, I basically would have run that tour I mean, having them in a, 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 a open top car, looking like they're coming straight out of the 1950s, shaking the hands of children through a fence that looks like they're, you know, visiting a concentration camp. I mean, it's and the I mean, it is quite clear that Prince William is a moron, um, and that you know we are now pretty sure that the. The, 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 the rather unpleasant comments about Archie came from him. I, I think he is staggeringly out of touch. He, I, 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 the thing I thought was quite concerning is something I saw today, which is what he wants to end the sort of never explain, never complain culture. It's like, no, if you're going to explain and complain, you are going to end up being political. And that's the death of an apolitical, and that's the great achievement of Elizabeth II is to say almost nothing consistently for 70 years and therefore can keep keep this broadly ridiculous institution being the most popular thing in the UK. And it's funny, isn't it? Because like both Charles and uh, Philip bristled at the never explain, never complain. Both were, were more vocal than the Queen. Both uh, kind of knuckled under and adopted her approach in the early noughties. Coincidentally, they then became much more popular than they'd ever been beforehand. Because like you say, this is clearly the only actual route uh, that is sustainable for a monarchy. In a I mean, it must, it must be an absolute not. I, I, to, to, be, to, be, to be sympathetic, I wouldn't want it. It sounds like, you know, it must be absolutely awful to be 
you know, hit with brickbats in the monarchy and not feel you can respond. But yeah, if you're going to have a mon- constitutional monarchy in the 21st century, it's the only way to go. Uh, oh, no, in the 20th century. So, I mean, it is quite striking. I mean, because I remember when Philip died, I sent some of these to you, didn't I, Luke? Like, Prince Philip used to be really outspoken on, like, topics of public interest um, um, in a way that he he wasn't in, like, our, like, no, since, no, I'd said since, no, in this century. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on here. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything Simon said in terms of Prince William as, as an individual. But, like, I think... I think there's a few things. Like one, I, I, I think I think you do have to be careful not to overstate it. They were met by cheering crowds. They they were greeted warmly in various different things they did. Um, some of the stuff they were asked to do looks goofy because it looks goofy, which I'll come to in a second. Um, it's not necessarily as bad as it looks. Charles had similarly tricky. Um, uh, a similarly tricky tr- tour to Australia um, when Australia was kind of going through its discussions about whether to become a republic. Um, I personally like, look, if, if the Canadians and the Australians and the New Zealand, the Zealanders, if they want to keep the Queen as their head of state, that's cool. That, that's, that's fun. Um, if, you know, obviously we have our overseas dependencies, you know, that, that's, that is what it is. I, I, I am genuinely baffled why um, there are Carib- no Caribbean nations that haven't got rid of the monarchy, given the, the nature of the history um, between uh, Britain and those countries. I'm not saying we can't be friends. I'm not saying there isn't uh, like an affinity between um, um, us and them that kind of has overcome the various crimes and misdeeds our ancestors did. Um, but like, I, you know, it's difficult to get into the mentality of, of monarchy at the best of times because it is such a, both such a privileged position and such an awful position. But like, I, I do not understand the mentality of somebody who would be comfortable as a white person ruling over a country that looks entirely different to you and you have no kith or kin connections to. Um I would just find that deeply uncomfortable and awkward. And also, you know, this, this is always where, like, just just before I bring in, like, this is where, no, this is where I am unusual in that my nationalism and my anti-colonialism are two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, I've always made this point. We, despite all what the, the Romans did for us, you know, literally founded, you know, the city that is our capital and probably the thing that makes us as wealthy as we are in London. Despite all that the the Romans did for us, we still revere Bodicea because fundamentally people don't like to be run by people who are different to them. Um, And I do not see how the monarchy got caught out by this. Surely this was inevitable. Lots and lots of countries in Africa, in Asia, even in the Caribbean, such as Trinidad, did this immediately after independence. Um, it was a bit of a bizarre anachronism that the monarchy had clung on to such an extent in the Caribbean, um, particularly in countries like Jamaica. Sorry, something you were going to say? Uh, no, I, I was just going to say I, I needed to check this, but I have I've also got the ideal candidate for the first president of Jamaica as well. I'd be the governor general. 
Oh, no, 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 no. My, no, my, my, no more fun than that. Michael Holding. Uh, it, he's, he's Jamaican. It, I mean, it might be. I mean, he, he lives in Derbyshire now. Um, but, um, it, it, you know, but, you I know, mean, he's got I mean, a, he's, he's, we know he's got a political voice. He's a national hero because of the cricket. I mean, I think the reality is, um, what, just, to go, just to go on to why this is happening now, you can't overstate how some of these countries have basically been a bit embarrassed that Barbados got rid of the monarchy last year um, because Barbados is kind of seen as, as being a bit servile to the, to the British. And by British, we mean English, of course. Um, you know, it is, it is where a lot of English people go on holiday every year. A lot of English people go to retire. Um, you know, the, the recent uh, cricket test uh, match between the, the Windies and, and England. England, England, there were like 10,000 England fans to like 2,000 West Indies fans. You know, and I think a lot of people just like, oh my God, the West, no, the Barbados has got rid of the monarchy. If Barbados can get rid of the monarchy, what, what on earth are we doing? Um, and like they, no, it was just a governor general that that became the, the president. Um, um, the, they didn't. Add, they didn't actually like alter their constitution in any meaningful way. Then they just replaced one figurehead with another. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like there is an argument, you know, how much of this is for show? Like, are 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 the Caribbean islands going to start looking seriously at replacing the Privy Council and not using the Privy Council as much as they do as a Supreme Court? Well, it's that, not like I have the Supreme Court of the Caribbean. I mean, there, I think there is a, a, a Caracom a Supreme Court already that they could use in theory. But, I, but you know, yeah, like, are they, you know, is this the thin end of the wedge in terms of actually kind of turfing British influence out of the West Indies? Or is it just a bit, a bit of populist theatre, maybe partially due to the uh, Meghan Markle interview, I think probably more likely due to the Rinrush scandal here, the, um, you know, you know when you're literally deporting people um, who came on British passports back to the West Indies, it's a bit hard to say there's this deep emotional connection um, between ourselves and, and those nations. When there's not visa-free travel between the West Indies and Britain, when um, you know the economic ties have atrophied during um, our membership of the European Union, um, and also you can't underestimate the impact Black Lives Matter had in the Caribbean. I know that sounds weird, but there were quite big protests um, 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 after the murder of George Floyd, um, in you know, in, you know, in part due to how militarized and hierarchical the societies are and how a lot of um, no, young black people, particularly young black men, particularly young black men who um, have darker skin because um, colorism is an issue in the Caribbean, um, feel they are treated by the establishment. Um, so like this to me, this is one that the royal family should have gone out ahead of they clearly sent William and uh, Kate over to try and ward off countries um, going um, uh, getting rid of the monarchy. 
Whereas it's like, did anyone know that like, like I knew because I remember because Matt, our friend Matt Gale has been moaning about the fact that Jamaica hasn't got rid of the Queen for like over a decade. Like the first version of it could be said, the WordPress site that we all used to write for has an article about him saying it's high time uh, Jamaica gets rid of the monarchy um, from back in 2011. But did most people know that Jamaica did it, that Jamaica did have the Queen instead of state, but Trinidad didn't? I don't think most people did. I, I think it's a red herring for most people in terms of how we interact with those islands. And the question is, you know, look, clearly the Queen is dying. Like, let's let's not beat around the bush. Like, she looks ever more frail. There's rumours she may not be able to attend Prince Philip's memorial service. There's rumours she may not be able to attend the state opening of Parliament. Like, we might be in, like, the last weeks, the last months um, of, of her reign, and it certainly doesn't feel like the royal family has had a strong hand at the wheel ever since Prince Philip got seriously ill. And as you see, look, there were opinion polls back in 2011 that showed that 60-70% of Jamaicans were happy to keep the Queen, and those figures have reversed in over 10 years. This is the thing with monarchy in, in the modern world. You have to keep fighting for it, and you have to keep fighting for it smartly. And, uh, and whoever is within the monarchy now, they need to uh, shape up and smarten up because they, they, they just ran into a, into a headwind. I should have been very easily, uh, they should have been very easily able to predict and avoid. My God. I followed up by being uh, followed up being depressing about the economy about uh, about warning the monarchy about its popularity. Yeah, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna Am say, I, uh, gonna, have I been gonna, have I been hit by a car? Do you want to talk about the asteroid that's gonna hit next? <laughs> no, I'm just okay. No, am I Simon? And then Simon became me. Well, so, so, I, I mean, I, I you see the difference. There's the difference. G. See, I, I obviously the econ economic stuff is very depressing to me. The 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 monarchy stuff is is nothing but deeply encouraging. <laughs> um, you know, uh, fi finally, more people around the world will be liberating themselves from this deep silliness. You won't <laughs> say that when we've got President Piers Morgan. If Piers Morgan won a democratic election, I would be depressed, but I would accept it because it would be the will of the deeply stupid people with whom I share a nation state. That's fine. <laughs> I thought that, you know, that's fine. No, look, you know, there's loads of people I don't agree with who get political power. At least I know, at least I know what Piers Morgan stands for and I could get rid of him. You, you, won't, you won't say that when the, uh, when the Good Morning Britain hunter takes over. I don't even know what that is, because obviously, like a normal person, I don't watch Good Morning Britain. Because... <laughs> yeah, every time I see GMB, I think they're referring to the union. So... <laughs> I would watch that. I would watch. Who reads the GMB these days? It doesn't exist, does it? It's part of Unite. No, no, I'm wrong. No, no GMB no, no, exists. No. It's no, no. Not... I can't remember. Anyway. I, I would I would like Len McCluskey to get a talk show. <laughs> Len no, McCluskey no. and young and Cla uh, John Claude Juncker. Well, why why would you like well, you those things? Keep John Claude I mean, Juncker sober enough. I, well, why oh, would yeah. I want him to stay sober? Mm -hmm. That's where the magic begins. 
Luke, tell us about a country called Ukraine. Right. Now, where would you like me to start? Well, um, um, I, okay. What, right. what, what are Ukrainians' attitude to Will Smith's of, of you in the 1990s? That is, that is, are they getting that's, jiggy with it? That's not gonna, that, like, I can't win on that point. I've, I've been, I've been, I've been made fun of for 20 odd years by this, this friendship group about not knowing anything about, not knowing anything about, not knowing yeah, yeah. anything about popular culture. I express an opinion. On popular culture, and I'm getting heckled for it. I think the thing is, Luke, you forgot. We're the wing of the popular of, of the friendship group that never made fun of you for not knowing anything about popular culture. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, I actually seriously went out and tried to expand my horizons. <laughs> I listened <laughs> to Will Smith from the nineties. I watched a load of stuff. I listened to I listened to a wave. Uh, wider variety of music than I used to. Uh, anyway, Ukraine. And you and yet you still <laughs> won't watch relative media videos. The thing is I've tried, I don't like them. <laughs> it's don't not think. like I refuse on principle. I've watched plenty of them. I don't like them. I think there is a bitter acidic quality to them that I don't like. And I agree with you, except the fact that I like it. Okay. You carry on, Luke. Right, so I think probably I think probably the best way of doing. Oh, so can, can, sorry. Actually, can I just say one thing? Actually, um, talking of internet trolls, I do like the fact that Vladimir Putin, like Vladimir Putin, tell, shows British turfs how it's done. He's so he is so in favour of the gender binary that he won't even use a gender neutral initial set to talk about jo- uh, Joanne uh, Rowling. He knows how to really ensure uh, that uh, womanhood is protected. It is quite alarming that a man with enough nuclear weapons to blow up this entire country several times over is doing speeches that are basically like, you would block that person on a message board if they posted <laughs> that. Well, I, 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 saw, I, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw a very good joke on Twitter, which, which is definitely like in my top ten favorite tweets now. Which is how can Vladimir Putin be a turf when the Siberian railway is trans? I saw that and very much enjoyed it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, for the sake of keeping this discussion to a manageable length. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna like give a. Recap I'm not gonna give like a recap of the news because I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you sort of know what you know what's going on in Ukraine. So I'm gonna like give you like my top ten list of things that I think has been interesting since last we spoke. <coughs> the first is that we've had a number of different and competing, and this is not all surprising, um, casualty figures come out for the Russians. Now, I'm not going to... Now, I think there are... Trying to estimate casualties is always... is a notoriously difficult process, particularly in a quasi-fascist... quasi-fascist 
which I think is now how we have to describe Putin's Russia. Um, <coughs> yeah, so trying to come up with ca- casualty figures is always notoriously difficult. But what's interesting is the ratio between killed and wounded, because whichever sort of figures you take, the ratio between killed and wounded is actually pretty consistent across them. And it's about three to two, i.e. three killed to every two to two wounded. Isn't that now, weird? Yeah, that is extremely weird. It's not it's yeah, it's normally about it's normally about three wounded to one killed. And in Iraq and Afghanistan it was closer to six wounded for every one killed. Now that says to me the Russians are having extreme difficulty um, with Kasbak, with evacuating with evacuating the their wounded. I've also seen video of Russian field hospitals with a lot of empty beds in them that are not consistent with the kind of figures you're even seeing from the Russian MOD. So I think there is a there is a there's very good circumstantial evidence to say that the Russians are having real difficulty evacuating their wounded. Um, Could it also be? Um, so you said it's it's it was it was three killed to two wounded, right? Yeah. Um, that presumably is a sign of maybe pure, poor equipment, poor armor yes um um because i mean this is a thing it's felt like a bit with russia that it's a bit you know it's like a 45 year old trying to do what they were like when they were a teenager like the thing with russia has always been like for <coughs> no since russia's been a thing is yeah. that they make no it's the old style line isn't it like quantity has its own quality they make up for being poorer and less organized than western countries with sheer overwhelming force. But like Russia isn't actually very populous now. Um, like it's got it's got more people than Ukraine, but it's got this huge pan-continental a- a- empire to to govern and populate. Yeah. And, yeah, and it, and it that, feels and like the, and, and the the other th- the other thing is because there because there is now an element of civil society. Um, you know, the, the an irreducible amount of civil society that Putin hasn't been able to eliminate and probably doesn't want to, because you need that level of civil society for a capitalist or a quasi-capitalist economy to function. There is extreme reluctance to commit, you know, large numbers of conscripts. And what's what's fascinating? What one of the, this is like my second point. What's fascinating to me is the local and national media in Russia, although it's been heavily censored, um, does still publish um, obituaries obituaries of uh, men that have been killed. Now it didn't it didn't it didn't do that in Afghanistan. The Soviet government explicitly banned local media from publishing a bit from publishing obituaries. And what that's allowed open source that's what what's that what that kind of open source intelligence allows you to do is it gives you some kind of a picture of if not overall casualty numbers at least units um, where casualties are being suffered. Now, what I'm about to say suffers. The, what I'm about to say is not exact because 
officers do tend to obviously gain more attention when they are killed and they are more worthy of obituary. Not more worthy, but they are more likely to receive an obituary. But the the ratio the ratio of the ratio of officers to enlisted men being killed is very, very high. Like I've seen I've seen I've seen figures as I've seen figures as high as twenty percent. So one in one in five casualties being an officer. Now again, that's partly due to to confirmation bias in in you know who's getting an obituary and who isn't. It's also due to the fact that you know um, because the Russian army and the Red Army before it lacked a good non-commissioned officer corps, officers are expected to perform a much wider range of duties than they would be in a Western army, and they're expected to be much closer to the actual fighting. But even so, a 20% casualty rate among officers is staggering and also completely um, completely untenable. Um, the third point is that we are, def- we are definitely seeing evidence that, remember that there was about 100 or so battalion tactical groups, uh, which is just a uh, a unit designation um, committed to Ukraine at the start of this. We've now definite evidence to see that that different battalion tactical groups that have taken heavy casualties are being merged together into into ad hoc ad hoc battle groups. And the the, the Russian army is definitely set up facility. Uh, there's definitely set up the kind of workshops, repair facilities, and replacement depots. To take units out of the front line, in they've set this up in Belarus, so units are being rotated out of the front line and sent to rest and refit. Um, that is definitely happening. Bizarrely, they seem to be using the Chernobyl exclusion zone as an area to, as an area to regroup in, presumably oh. because they're fairly confident that the Ukrainians won't shoot anything very heavy into there. Um, fourth point, fourth point I'd want to make is that although there was that press conference, that really quite weird press conference that the Russian MOD did, uh, saying that they were shifting their focus to, um, Donbass and Eastern Ukraine, there is really not much evidence of that on the ground. Um, in fact, if anything, it looks like the, the Russian forces to the Northeast and Northwest of Kiev are regrouping for another another push on the capital. Um, and th- this really speaks to the fact that there is no theatre commander. There is no one in operational command of this war. And so what you have is the different military districts that are involved seem to be competing with each other for resources. Also um, a claim that they all want to go for the glory. Yeah, it's absolutely... It, Beggar's belief that there is not a that there is not a senior officer between Valery Gerasimov in Moscow and these different these different military districts. There is no one playing a Norman Schwarzkopf role, playing a Tommy French role, playing a David Petraeus role. And that not only not only does that go against common sense, it goes against Russian operational doctrine. And what that says to me is 
what that says to me is I think that Vladimir Putin is playing a much more proactive role, not just in the in the strategy behind this war, but in the operational and tactical side of this war than but, you would want to. But that's insane, A, because that's not his job, B, because he's really old, and if even if he had military experience, he'd be a long way removed from it, and C, he was never a soldier. Uh, like, he, he was a, well, maybe he was at, at a very young age, but, like, his actual professional background is, is a spy. Like it's, yeah, it's it, it's 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 madness. But I can't I can't I can't think of another conclusion. You know, it's the old Sherlock Holmes line of, you know, um, remove the impossible and everything yeah, else remove becomes the, remove impossible. The, remove the impossible and whatever is left, however unlikely, must be the must be the conclusion or whatever it is. So I, I think it's know. I think it's uh, remove the impossible and then everything else becomes plausible. Yeah, what do you know that quote, Simon? Yeah, that's basic. That's basically uh, you. I don't know it exactly. You've absolutely got. You've got the. Uh, you've got the gist of it. Certainly. Yeah. Um. So that that that's that to me that's to me is worrying on any number. Well, of the, the alternative is is that you know Russia has just became a personal personal dictatorship, and one of the issues of personal dictatorships is that we all enjoy people flattering us. Yeah, and so he, you no, know, like Hitler was notorious for this as well. Putin is just sending different armies in and, and saying, "Go out and impress me." Yeah, I think I, th- I think that's, I think that that's the that's the only thing that makes sense to me, given the, given the, the available fact. the 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 next point I make is we're seeing the first um, evidence of organized, concerted partisan warfare behind Russian lines in Kherson. Oh, there's been collaborators assassinated, hasn't there? Yeah. So not only not only we see not only we seen um Belarusian uh, Belarusian rail workers sabotaging the railway lines between Russia and Belarusia, but we are starting to see real evidence of, you know, of organ of organized coherent resistance in occupy in occupied Ukrainian territory, and that could pin down that could pin down a very very large number of Russian troops. Um, the next point I'm making this is this is something of a this is something of a concern for the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are making very good local progress with counterattacks to the northeast northwest. Of Kiev and around Sumy. In fact, they might be in a position in the next few days to effectively lift the siege on Sumy and reopen and reopen the main ground routes between Kiev and Sumy. The problem is, I worry. I worry that I worry from a Ukrainian point of view that whilst these these um, local counterattacks might be working against a Russian army that is basically trying desperately to reorganize itself. I worry that it does stretch Ukrainian resources very, very thin, um, and it do, it does it does open it does open them up in turn to a to a you know a Russian counter strike if the Russians can ever can ever you know untangle the enormous mess that is their logistic that is their logistical system, well, and if they can reinf- and if they can 
reinforce and rebuild units that have taken heavy casualties. Your uh, colleague, Phil... Phil O'Brien. Phil O'Brien. He's made a point that you were talking about that, you know, focusing on, uh, Donba- on, on Donbass. Um, I, I did an article about um, maybe, maybe actually what you, Russia wants from the Ukraine is a Black Sea coast. And I had um, not was not aware of or had forgotten that Vladimir Putin actually did a big article last year. And it's part of that big article, which no, so I didn't forget that, but it's part of that big article. He bangs on about the Novo Russia transfer. Yeah. Novo, Novo Russia had been a province separate to Ukraine um, before um, uh, the, you know, the, the, the post imperial civil war that where the Bolsheviks eventually take charge. And um, Nova Russia is, based, is basically that area. It, you know, it is the Donbass, it is the Black Sea coast, it is Crimea. Um, and so, no, there is an argument because like, basically the thing is, if 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 the the EU will not accept the Ukraine, if NATO will not accept Ukraine, um, if Russia can get control of the Black Sea, sorry, the Black Sea coast it kind of controls Ukraine because that's the route Ukraine will need to go to export its stuff. Um, and, and, and so Phil O'Brien was making a point that it, it, there is, because of the issues the Russians have had, there is no easy way for them to get things from the north of eastern Ukraine to the south of eastern Ukraine, that actually what they're probably going to have to do if they do want to take people from the north to the south is put them is have to have them go back into Russia and come out the other side. Yeah, I which, think that's absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. Which will t- and he was he was saying it would take absolutely forever. It, that could that could take a month to two months. Easily, um, not and not only will it take forever, but you've actually got to disengage. You've actually got to do the most difficult thing, and you've actually got to do the most difficult thing in war, which is to actually successfully disengage from an enemy that's fighting you around Kharkiv and around Sumy, without your without your frontline units completely collapsing. Um, and the the thing is, as well, trying to encircle the Donbass only really works if you can free up the forces that are now currently attacking Mariupol. And then the problem is, even when... And Mariupol will fall in the next few days. Probably. You did say that last week, Luke, and the week before. Yeah, I mean, this this is the astonishing thing. They should have taken that. The Russians should have taken that in about the first 48 hours. The fact that we're a month into this nightmare, and they have is astonishing. Um, although the mayor of Mariupol is now saying that, he, that um, to, and I'm, this is a direct quote, the city is now in the hands of the occupiers. Um, but it doesn't really alter my basic point, which is the units that have been investing in Mariupol, have been attacking Mariupol, are presumably so exhausted that they're gonna take. They're gonna need. They're gonna need weeks. They're gonna need weeks to recover. Um, to say nothing of the fact that you're gonna need 
a good number of them to actually occupy the city. Um, so the Russians are making progress in Donbass, but really, really slowly, much too slowly, um, to realistically encircle a large number of Ukraine, a large number of Ukrainian units. And if the Ukrainians keep making progress forward around Kharkiv, uh, around Kharkiv and Sumy, then there is the possibility that uh, actually they'll be across the supply lines of the, the of the units of the Russian units um, attacking into Donbass. Um, I mean, does anybody does anybody have anything they want to say about Roman Abramovich being poisoned? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I um, I, I, I just don't understand why Middlesbrough fans are so sore losers. To be honest, <laughs> it's just like wow. Look, either, either, some, either something is going catastrophically wrong there. I.e., Roman Abramovich was trying to poison a bunch of Ukrainians, and he poisoned himself as well, or. Um, or or uh, Roman Abramovich isn't as close to Vladimir Putin as he thought he was. I mean, you said that maybe he was just like. Uh, the, the, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying this. Uh, this is from Belling. This is from Bellingcat. If you read their report on it, their report on it says a number of interesting things. Firstly, they think that the target of the poisoning was obviously the Ukrainian negotiators. And the second thing to say is. The medical expert they've contacted to sort of analyse the the poison says they don't think there was enough of it to actually kill anybody. So the idea the idea was to probably make these people very ill to spook Zelensky. Hmm. I mean, it's it's one of these things. I mean, I can't remember who was saying this. Um, I think a couple of people saying it on Twitter that I follow, which is, we are now back into the criminology days. We are. We really are. But because of the the implosion of, of, of Russian independent media, because the Western media has been kicked out, you are back to, you know, Russia is an enigma wrapped around in a riddle. Um, you know, like, it is incredibly difficult to work out what's going on. But certainly what we seem to be hearing is nothing good because people keep being fired or disappearing or placed under house arrest. Um, this does not seem like a regime that that believes it's things are going well. With a brother, it is genuinely unclear what role he is playing. There were rumors, I think this weekend or weekend before, that the Ukrainians intervened to stop him being sanctioned by Washington because they think he's an important go-between uh, between them and Putin. You know, you know, it's, it's like, who knows, you know? It's like, who knows? Um, but, you know, the fact that, and again, I, to, the thing I, I wonder is, and this is not an original point for myself, you know, again, was it a Russian operative that had some of this poison lying around and thought they would do something spectacular to impress Putin? What's the what's the phrase? Uh personalist. No, what's the phrase he encouraged? Working working towards the Fuhrer. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We should, we should explain this. So, like this, 
I remember learning this as a 10-year-old. When, like all 10-year-olds, I stayed up to watch the Nazis a warning from history. Great, great documentary. I have yeah, that. Yeah, brilliant. Documentary. I have that on video at home somewhere. At my parents. Um, and um, and um, I think a lot of people have this idea of Nazism, fascism, or at least they made the trains run on time. Oh, they built the Autobahn. Um, what the Nazis one from history it's like one of the first really high profile things to go into the fact that Hitler was a lunatic um, like, like Hitler was a dilettante um, he was like you know he, he he was constantly easily distracted he was constantly prone to wild enthusiasms he did not organise his government well he'd have people do the same job and encourage them to compete with each other because he enjoyed watching them compete and would think that would make them better. And yeah, like, and like, that is kind of where you get like this working from the Fuhrer idea in the sense of you just have a complete mess of a system, almost like an absence of a system. You have yeah, a cabal. It's, it's the absence of system. You have a cabal, you have a crowd of people who are all just, it's court, it's a, it's a court. You have a court of people all jostling to impress the supreme leader. Yeah. I mean, and the, the, the last point, I've got really two two points and that two more points and then I'm done. The first is we can the first is we already see this from um, some of the speeches Zelensky's been making over the last week, but I think this is gonna become an acute problem for Washington and NATO more generally. What we, what Washington, I think, in particular, and what Europe has been prepared for is a relatively brief conventional war followed by a long-term insurgency in Ukraine. And that's simply not how, that's simply not how this thing is playing out. So... If you if you look if you look at the if you look at the equipment we've been sending to Ukraine, it's small arms and light anti-tank and light anti-aircraft weapons. The perfect, the perfect set of weaponry for an insurgent for an insurgent army. But the Ukrainians are actually mounting a very competent conventional defense of the country. And increasingly, you know, the javelins and the end laws and the things like Star Street are going to be welcome to them. But if they're going to have a chance of, if they're going to have a chance of negotiating from a position of strength, they're going to need tanks. They're going to need artillery. They're going to need infantry fighting vehicles. They're going to need fuel. They're going to need small arms. I mean, Sorry, Luke, just a quick question. Like, presumably also like those anti, no, the, the weapons we are provided, at some point they just become less useful because you've shot down the stuff the Russians have, you can shoot down with them? Well, yeah. That, uh, yes. But the, the Russians have a lot of stuff well, to shoot with them. Um, but, yeah, and, and like Zelensky's already been asking for this. And at some point, we're going to have to make the decision. We're going to have to make the decision. Do we... 
do we arm the Ukrainians, not just on a scale, but at a level of conventionality and a level of, um, you know, at a level where they can win a conventional victory here, or at least where they can negotiate, negotiate from a position of strength? And do we see that as escalation? Or do we see supplying arms as, you know, what's the difference between supplying rockets and supplying tanks? Uh, I don't think I don't think any I don't think anybody's made that decision yet. Isn't it more complicated than that though? Because we have been the most aggressive country yeah. um, in terms of supplying Ukraine. Yeah. We have a lot of these like anti-aircraft, anti-tank missiles yeah, lying this, around. This is the thing. This, this is good. This is going. This is going to be a decision. This because what's going to have what's going to have to happen is the Poles, the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Slovenes, the Bolts, like basically the former Warsaw Pact, has still got a lot of ex-Soviet stuff lying around because it has to be stuff. That the Ukrainians can use from day one because we don't have the time to train them. We don't have the time to train them, so it has to be ex-Soviet stuff. Now that said, the U- the US the US the US the US can all the US can also go out and buy this stuff at scale. Um, so, like the the Egyptians, the Egyptians have got a lot of it. Um, so whether it whether it how usable it is. Is a different question, but they've got a lot of ex-Soviet stuff in storage. You can buy. You can buy. If you can buy it from wanted, India. Yeah, I was just about to say, if the US wanted to, it could buy it in bulk from India. So finding the stuff. And so we should say, we should say, like the reason why India would be particularly useful to buy it from is Egypt now is kind of dependent on America for all sorts of reasons. What dependence is doing a word? Yeah. It has been long closely aligned with America. Whereas India, one of the reasons India <laughs> has been quite close to Russia, um, even during the current crisis, there are other reasons we may talk about in a second. But one of the reasons we're quite close is because it's bought most of its military equipment from Russia or, or the Soviet Union. Yeah. And it needs to get spare parts from Russia. And so it can't go cold turkey on uh, Russia because it'd be left without a functioning army. Yeah, so I mean so I mean that that's gonna it's gonna require it's gonna require the US it's gonna require the US to open its checkbook. I and for the NATO countries in Eastern Europe, it's going to require the US to backfill their inventory, their inventories as well. Which, again, would be good for, for the Americans, because it means like, one of the things the Americans always complain about... Is interoperability. Is, yeah, it's having to make sense of all these wacky different um, kits that the Europeans have. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know, like, Luke, you know, I'm a squish... I'm a peacenik. I'm a Russophile. Um, I'm a fellow traveller, useful idiot, whatever, whatever phrase people want to throw at me. And like, I would have, I would have been against sending the javelins and stuff like that to Ukraine. Um, not entirely sure I'm wrong yet. We'll see how this plays out. This could end up with the entire world being destroyed. Um, do you think going from 
Britain and other countries selling the missiles that they have lying around to such a complicated Lend-Lease style arrangement with the Americans as the buyer or supplier of last resort. Um, does that feel like escalation to you? And if it is escalation, does it feel like a escalation too far? Um, the answer, the answer, the answer to both questions is no, because I tend to look at this as once, once you, once you made the decision to supply weapons, you've made the decision to supply weapons. A Russian soldier is just as dead from a javelin or a bullet that you supplied than he is from a tank or an artillery piece that you supplied. Would you make the difference with aircraft? I think that the, 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 prob the problem with aircraft is how do you actually deliver them into Ukrainian hands without creating the, without creating the risk of a NATO pilot being shot down? Presumably you would need Ukrainian pilots cross over the border. Yeah, but if you did if you did that, you'd collect if you did that, it would either take ages or you run the risk of collapsing the Ukrainian Air Force. Yeah. Which uh, how the hell is that still a thing? Yeah, and that was gonna be my next point, and maybe last but how the hell is that still a thing? Because everybody goes on about everybody goes on about um, you know, did did we massively did we massively over you know did we massively um, overestimate the Russian army? Yes, we did massively overestimate the Russian army, but not as much as we overestimated the Russian air force because everybody assumed that this would be a war fought with the with the Russians having air superiority, and they haven't got there in three weeks, longer, a month, more than a month. And like, I'll be fascinated to see when, because actually, I think there's a lot of guff being that. Oh, I think it's guff. There's a lot of guff being written about. Is this the death of the tank? Uh, and I don't think it is. And we can maybe talk about that on another podcast. But I'm aware I've been talking for a while. Maybe um, when we've got someone like Dan who can actually go toe to toe with you. Yeah. But I think, but I do think one of the things that's going to come out of this war is we're going to have to drastically redefine what we mean by it, what we mean by air superiority, because the you know the the, the vast array of armed drones now available means that I think it means that I think that the the old definitions of air superiority of you can go along and bomb radar sites and bomb airfields and destroy aircraft on the ground. That may not necessarily hold true anymore. Any thoughts, Simon? No, I've been. I mean, I found this. I found this fascinating, and, and as I keep saying, and you know, that I find I find myself just sort of having to sit back and listen and, and let Luke sort of expertise wash over me slightly i i sorry i'm sorry about that. no i didn't mean that as, i didn't mean that as a criticism he's, he's, he's used having to let my ignorance wash over him in another segment <laughs> exactly. so this, is a, this is a welcome this is a welcome reprieve no I, I don't yeah and i don't want to sort of you know it would be it would feel foolish for me to try and you know chip in i don't i don't know and i find i find this complicated and i find 
and it, it, it is a remarkable, you know, the, the Ukrainian situation is remarkable. It is, you know, it is, it is unexpected. Um, yeah, but on, on this side of stuff, I don't have a great deal more to contribute. Um, personally, I kind of feel that's a place to leave it, really. Yeah, can I just, um, oh yeah, let's leave it there because we can come back to some of the shift in geopolitical stuff at another time. So I've been more calling. He's been Dr. Luke Middup. He's been Simon Alvey. And we'll talk to you again in a while. <laughs>